JM and the AM Shalom Task Force in our studio, representatives of this amazing organization that is uh, out there uh, to continue their incredible work, are in our studio. We'll, we'll introduce the panel to you in a moment. On May the 4th, this coming Sunday, on May the 4th, the Shalom Task Force, which always answers the call, is calling on you and all of us to participate in their annual brunch this coming Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Sephardic Temple on Branch Boulevard in Cedarhurst, New York. Among the uh, awardees, Aviva and Joseph Hach, Judy Silverman, and a memorial tribute to Rebbitzin Pess Epstein. It's all happening this coming Sunday. We'll give you the uh, information, website, etc. coming up. I want to welcome Alan Singer, who is the executive director of Shalom Task Force. Alan, welcome to JM in the AM. Good morning, Nachum. Thank you for having us. A pleasure. I want to welcome Mrs. Esther Williams, who's a board member of Shalom Task Force, and uh, will discuss with us uh, women's education regarding this important topic. Good morning to you. Good morning. And Mr. Mayor Rizel, who's the director of men's education for Shalom Task Force. Good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for hosting us. A, a pleasure. Alan, kick it off for us. Shalom Task Force has a big event this coming Sunday. P- please. Tell this audience what type of organization Shalom Task Force is. Thanks again, Nachum, and thanks again for having us on for our first show with you. Shalom Task Force was founded in 1993 when a local physician approached our president and founder, Mrs. Nachama Wolfson, with the startling revelation that he was seeing bruised and injured women in his practice, the signs of domestic abuse. Determined to act instead of ignore the problem, a small group of dedicated women created Shalom Task Force with Hashem's help and became pioneers in bringing to light the hidden reality that Orthodox Jewish women are victims of domestic violence. At least one in four Orthodox women will be a victim of domestic violence in her lifetime, including physical, verbal, financial, and sexual abuse. Orthodox victims commonly stay in abusive marriages five to seven years longer than the secular norm due to the concern regarding shaduchim of her children. Mm-hmm. Our anonymous domestic violence hotline, which is our first department that we created, receives over 1,000 calls each year. More than 70% of the victims have children living with them, and 43% of those who call have more, four or more children living at home. Victims of abuse who call the hotline are likely to be poor and will face a greater threat of poverty if they attempt to escape their abuser. Our trained volunteers have answered over 17,000 calls since 1995. Our volunteers speak Russian, Yiddish, Hebrew, Spanish, Hungarian, keep the hotline open day and night, six days a week, year-round. Once a victim makes the call, trained advocates offer non-judgmental support compassion, validation, and information as needed to ease the trauma experienced by the caller. The first step is creating an atmosphere that allows the caller to feel safe and empowers her to tell her story. The second department that we created is legal services. Due to increasing demand, we opened Sarah's Voice, a free legal program for victims. Since January 2010, over 400 survivors of domestic violence, sexual assault, and stalking have come to Sarah's Voice for legal advice and representation. The Sarah's Voice legal team helps clients obtain services to allow them to escape abusive relationships and secure the needed benefits and financial support to allow them to live independently from their abuser. 
We then asked, what if we inject ourselves into the process earlier? If we launch an initiative aimed at prevention, will we make a difference? And yes, we will. And we help break the cycle of abuse by offering educational programs to teens, young men and women in colleges, yeshivas, and seminaries. We created two education departments here with me today. As you pointed out, Nachum, are Mr. Mayor Rizel, who's the director of the Men's Education Division, and Mrs. Esther Williams, who is a presenter for our Women's Education Department, as well as being a founding board member of Shalom Task Force. We speak to young women in the 12th grade, 1,000 per year, discuss dating, healthy relationships, the red flags of domestic violence, and conflict resolution. We do the same for young men, about 500 per year in high school programs and base medrash programs. We bring our educational program to Israel during a young woman's year in seminary. 900 students each year attend our presentations in Israel, delivered by 18 English-speaking olim who we trained. But we knew there was still more that we could do in strengthening Shalom Bias when the general population's divorce rate is at 50%. We know that the marriage of husband and wife is the foundation of the Jewish family, just as families are the foundation of our communities. In our quest for sustaining Shalom Bias, we were assisted by President Bush's Healthy Marriage Initiative and Shalom Workshops, our fifth department, was created. Each year, over 450 couples attend Shalom Workshops, which are free, and teach participants how to increase understanding and sensitivity to each other's feelings, communicate effectively, build a sense of mutual respect, and promote self-confidence in each other. Research has shown that marriage preparation can function as an immunization that boosts a couple's capacity to handle potential difficulties. Our board and staff remain dedicated to strengthening Jewish family life and have helped tens of thousands of individuals. And that's a brief description of what we've accomplished in our first 20 years. A brief description. That might be the longest answer I've ever gotten to a question, frankly, and I've been at this a long time. I assume all this information is on the web, shalomtaskforce.org, shalomtaskforce.org. What was the statistic you said, 17,000 a year? 17,000 since its inception. Since inception. So, and, and you had another statistic. 1,000 per year. 1,000 per year. So 1,000 per year to me, to me means many per week. Um, I, I have this vision, and I'm speaking now to Esther Williams. Uh, I have this vision that often volunteers for the Shalom Task Force sit at the confidential hotline and often have nothing to do. The phone is not ringing much. That's an that's a misimpression, right? Correct. Though um, there are different times when the phone does and does not ring. Uh, we have a lot of work that our volunteers do do during the time when right. they are not answering the calls. But it's an active line. It's an active line. There could be a time when three calls come in at the same time. There can be quiet sessions. But when it, that woman who's calling is your sister or your friend or your colleague, you want to make sure that there's someone there to answer the phone. And what what is the strategy? I mean, I would guess that these types of hotlines have been in existence in this country for even longer than the Shalom Task Force. Is this a duplicate of what other communities or what the general community has done? Excellent question. Uh, our, we started out as a group of women who responded to, the, to uh, this physician's phone call. We were not interested in reinventing the wheel. Right. We were interested in finding out what was it that these women were not getting 
that they needed. And what we found was that religious women were hesitant to call a domestic abuse hotline. They were concerned as to whether they would have the information that they would need or understand the sensitivities required. And we realized that what they needed was someone who would say, I hear you, I believe you, how can I help you? That's why we created our hotline. Right. Even though a regular hotline would also hear them and believe them, but they probably wouldn't have the uh, either the resources for them or, like you described, the sensitivities. Correct. Understand what the – I mean, Absolutely. <laughs> we know if we bring someone in here, we need someone who knows the community and understands Correct. what's going Correct. on. Correct. Our resource manual is quite thick, right. and we've done a lot of work creating our resource manual, and that's one of the things the women do in their downtime right. is helping. We have over 60, 70 volunteers at any one time. And um, How often is the hotline open? Is it always open? The hotline open? is open practically full-time six days a week except for Shabbos. Yes. And um, Practically. Shalom Task Force in our studio. Their big event coming up Sunday. We'll talk more about it in a moment. And um, every one of these women has to be trained, obviously. Yes. And I want, I want to clarify that the women calling in are not necessarily from any particular demographic. We've got every religious, economic cultural spectrum. We've helped women in the Bukharian community, women in the Persian community, women in the Hasidic community, every every spectrum. And you've helped women from families with plenty of money in the bank and others Absolutely. who are dirt It's poor. a misconception to think that you can only be a victim of domestic uh, abuse if you are in a certain cultural or financial situation. Have you ever manned the hotline? Yes, I have. And I can only tell you that because I no longer do. We do this totally confidentially. Otherwise, you would not be able to tell me no. that you even do it. Absolutely not. But you've done it? Yes. And there m- I took the first call on the hotline, actually. Interesting. That yes. must have been a nerve-wracking experience for you. Nerve-wracking. Do we know how that woman's doing? Uh, she, uh, no. We have we no don't, that, that's one of the challenges of a hotline is that you really don't know if you're going to get the feedback. You give the information right. and you don't know what the next step is. I found the most challenging phone calls were not the ones that I could rationalize, no matter how much I was trained, rationalize in my head and say, well, it, this, she is a victim because. Right. I found the most difficult call was that girl could have been my daughter. Right. So I'm, I'm not trying to be funny here, but, but do you sometimes respond, call the cops? Do you sometimes say, Absolutely. hang up this phone and call the police? Absolutely. Uh, there are times when a woman is calling in a moment. The question is, why did she call today? Many of these women have been in situations for 12 years. We want to know why you're calling now. What happened that made you call now and the answer so that we can be. really help you? And the Sometimes answer. the answer is, I am in desperate sa- safety situation. And we have... Oh, my life is literally my in My life danger. is in danger, and right. ha- we have to guide them with that. Because it's a confidential hotline, if they choose for us to make that phone call, they have to give us that information. Right. We don't have it. Right. But, uh, yeah. So a woman could call and say, the li- my life and the lives of my children are in danger. Absolutely. That, that could also and be a safety plan. plan is a very, very, very critical part of our training, a safety plan for her. But we have to understand that she knows best what's safe for her. Statistically, most women in the general public get hurt when they are choosing to leave, not when they stay. So telling someone mm. you should leave is a very dangerous thing to do. You have to be very careful. Do do any of your current volunteers sometimes turn to you and say, "This is I can't handle this." this yes, it's this very cause. stressful. Yes. No, not. Oh, not yes, in we have. Meaning, oh, meaning oh so that's call. important to know that all our volunteers are in constant, constant supervision. 
We have a supervisor who's constantly supervising them, processing each phone call. They can call her anytime during the call. And we have ongoing, even though we have an intensive, intensive training for our, supervi- for our volunteers, we have an ongoing training constantly for them. I mean, your hotline people must be from a certain age group. You, you can't have a 25-year-old do this, we, can you? We don't. They have to be of a certain age group. They have to be married. They have to have a certain uh, maturity. We, do, we, we don't even take all the women who we train to be on the hotline. It's a serious job. I'm, I'm, I'm not minimizing it at all. You right, getting? right. Are all of them mothers? Um, or the majority, I, I guess. would say so. I would say so. Wow. I don't. I don't know all the volunteers at this no, time. I, but I would say that most of them are mature women, but we have young women too. Yeah. Um, and it's because of the. Tr- what happened was after I was on the hotline for for about for, after five years, what women were saying to us was, you know, I wish you'd been here before. I may not have have gotten into this situation, and that's what led us to create our prevention program, which uh, was yeah, which very we're much. Get- we're going yeah. to get to that in a second, but yeah. the, aside from the the desperate, you know, should I call the cops or not call, you probably get a lot of calls that are at the very beginning of the process. The call could be from you know, a young my woman. My husband hit me for the first time. A young woman that last night was the third uh, last night was the third night of Shevabrachas, and he called me a name to last night was a last night of my child last child's Shevabrachas, and I want out and everything you could possibly think of in between, including men, including children calling wow um i I guess there's no reason not to uh advertise the hotline number right no absolutely we should tell people yes the domestic violence hotline number for shalom task force is 718-337-3700 718-337-3700 before we talk about the the preventative measures and some of the other programs that you've introduced, Alan. The event is Sunday, and you want to Correct. see a tremendous show of support from the community. If people are as uh, mesmerized by this conversation as I am, then they should write a check and come on out and enjoy a nice brunch on Sunday. Absolutely, they'll be inspired. Absolutely, we hope it'll be inspiring with a short amount of speeches and a lovely morning that talks about a very meaningful cause. And the organization, as you pointed out, is already in existence for 22 years. This is not a startup or a fly-by-night. This is a an organization that is uh, that is well entrenched, thank God, in our community. All right, we mentioned and we mentioned legal services. So this is this is what you you hand that off as a volunteer again in your role. You hand that off to somebody who who's was, expert in the area. What had happened was that we're really responsive. We're not looking to reinvent the wheel that, and like you said, that right. any other organization is doing. One of the things that we found being on the hotline was what were the resources that we couldn't give these women. What was missing in the big picture. And one of the things we found that was seriously missing was legal services for women in need. Very often their husbands would have a very barracuda lawyer and they were desperate for information, for guidance, for advocacy, and for legal services. And we were very lucky to be able to create Sarah's Voice. We are able to refer our women to very capable attorney and assistant and, and paralegals who are able to take them through the system. Mm-hmm. Small point, Nachum, since you gave out the hotline number, sure. thank you for doing that. There's complete anonymity. There's no caller ID on that hotline number. All of the conversations start with, will you, will you give me a name to use during our conversation? doesn't have to be the person's real name. So even When they emerge uh, out of that process, though, and need legal services, obviously. Right, then obviously they have no choice. I, I mean... So even if you know 
that you have to send the cops to their house. You can't. You don't know Unless who they are. Unless she chooses to. It's Understood. very. It's a mis- it's, it's, I may think I know. Right. I don't know because she knows. She knows when he changes his breath. I don't know what's safe for her. She knows. If she doesn't say she's safe, I can't make that decision for her. You think people have lied to you on the hotline? I think people um, take a long time to to trust us. I think the, my experience has been in most cases the reverse is true. They'll make a phone call. They'll tell you a little bit of what's going on. Right. And the second phone call, you'll get a little more. By the fourth phone call, you find out that this situation is horrific. She wasn't able to tell you that on right. the first phone call. She didn't know if she could trust you. Yeah, my question is, is an abusee ever calling your hotline and just lying about yes. being abused? That has happened. Uh, I would imagine, I, well, this is what I tell people when they ask me for statistics, etc. Right. I say, if you take the thousands of phone calls <laughs> and you tell me 25% were false. second phone calls right. or false oh, or right. not so bad, whatever, we're still left with quite a big number. Oh, I'm not questioning right. that. I'm and just... if, and if, if I tell people, say, how many are there, I say, I don't know. But I do know that you have at least one person in your life that you may not be aware of who's a friend, a colleague, a relative, a neighbor who has this situation. Right. From any neighborhood, any Anywhere. background. Absolutely. As, and, at, and it's, and it's, at it's, the most prominent synagogue. It's, it's irresponsible of us to try to, to try to rationalize for ourselves here, but for the grace of God go I, that it's, um, it's only this person. It's right. only a Balchuva. It's right. only a, a, someone whose father was an abuser. It's only whatever. It's not true. Right, and our, our, fortunately, our history has proven that. You must get a lot of reaction uh, from people on the hotline uh, who simply can't believe that you're familiar with their way of life, whether it be Hasidic or, or very modern or, or geographically you know, way Absolutely. out there somewhere. And, that, and that's a serious part of our training, that when you answer the phone, whether you, whoever you're talking to, you have to be where they are right. and to understand that when a Hasidic woman says... Um, my husband wants to do X, Y, and Z. It may culturally be fine in another world, but you have to understand where she's coming from and what she's trying to tell you. Right. So these uh, these women on the hotline, I'm talking about now the ones accepting the calls, are real heroes. I mean, they are changing families on a regular basis. Absolutely. And the hardest part is sitting there waiting for the call sometimes. Right. And then... But yeah, when that phone rings, and though, also the that har- must also be... That's hard, but and then you hang up. And you don't know what happened. It's right. also difficult. And that's one of the challenges of confidential hotline, is not getting the feedback to know that what you did worked. And then you're sitting up all night that I do the right thing. Exactly. <sighs> Boy. Uh, all right. Now we'll speak to both Mrs. Esther Williams and Mr. Mayor Rizel about education in the community. We'll start with the women. Uh, so what? So th- this gets instituted. Now you say to yourself, or your board, or your organization, or your founder, all say to themselves, "Okay, we gotta we gotta stem the tide. We gotta nip this in the bud. We've got to do something where, at a young age, a young lady is aware of what's out there." So what is happening? What happened to this woman that allowed uh, allowed her to be in such a horrific situation? Right. What did she did not know? What did society not protect her from? That was our question. And we put together a comprehensive workshop for young women about trusting your gut, what to do with that information when it happens as opposed to rationalizing it. There are millions of reasons why people ignore that feeling, but what should you be doing with it? What stage are we talking about now? When they've met a guy, when they're engaged when, to a guy, when, when they're married to I a don't, guy? At any point in the relationship Where things when something don't seem says, right. uh-oh, you don't rationalize it because your two best friends just got engaged. Don't rationalize it because you're 10 pounds overweight. Don't rationalize it because your parents are divorced. Stop and say, what's going on here, and am I safe? And sometimes you are. 
How do you learn the skills and who do you go to with this information? Conflict resolution, healthy communication, what it means to be safe. That's what we want to teach these young women. Wow. Uh, and the uh, way to do that is to literally get them when they're teenagers. Well, we start with 12th grade. Some schools, depending on the culture of the school, right. earlier. But we found afterwards that it's not the best time. The best time is really right before they start dating. Mm. So we have a wonderful program for 10th graders, 12, 10 to 12th graders, but we have an even more wonderful program which is not the same for young women coming back from seminary from Israel who really are going to be starting to date, right. or young women in universities, in colleges, in, in seminaries in America right. who are really ready to start dating. Do you sometimes think that you're really giving them ultra-suspicion about men? Okay, so that's 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 an interesting thing because people always say you're scaring them. Yeah, exactly. If I showed you, the, we do give them evaluations to fill out. And if I show you the majority of evaluations what are just the opposite, I now feel relaxed. Their reality is frightening. They don't want to be single. They don't want to be divorced. They don't want to be in an abusive relationship. I'm empowering them to be safe. And the evaluations show us that this is what they're feeling when they finish the workshop. Right. Just the opposite of what you're worried about. All right. Mayor Rizal is here. There's a men's education angle to all of this as well. Good morning, sir. Good morning. How are you? Uh, and are the men also learning this as teenagers or a little older? When do you step into this whole process? We actually start at, on the ninth grade level. Really? Although the primary focus is on the twelfth grade when it right. relates to the high school boys. I will note, though, I was brought on board just over seven years ago. Right. The, fo- the primary focus of the men's program is not geared toward domestic abuse per se. It's about healthy relationships in general, and domestic abuse is something that sometimes happens within right. relationships. So I will not walk into a classroom and say to the young men, guys, I'm here today to tell you not to be an abuser, nor am I there to tell them don't get abused. But we're there to talk about their lives in general, certainly when we're talking to younger men. They're not thinking about marriage. Right. They're not thinking about being abusive or not. That's not their focus. And much of the, really the aim of our program is to help guys talk among themselves what their relationships in their current life are like and how can they enhance those with an eye toward the future later on. But when it comes to the abuse piece specifically, I'll walk into a 12th grade classroom sometimes of young men, let's say there's 25, 35 guys in the room. I'll say by a raise of hands, who here intends and plans on being an abuser when they grow up? I would assume nobody raises their hand. Hands do not go up. (laughs) And we kind of use that as a springboard to discuss, but yet if we were to now take the answers that were demonstrated here in the room and then perhaps to reflect on the statistic that Dr. Singer related before, talking about in in the population at large, abuse happens. How do people get there? What can they do now when they're younger to kind of prevent that from happening? How can they enhance their current status? I I could imagine, and maybe I'm just going back to, you know, when I was in school, but I can imagine when someone like yourself or other outside educators walk in to discuss topics like this with high schoolers, with male high schoolers, they likely don't take it too seriously. How has the reception been? I appreciate you bringing up the point that (laughs) has been um, a aside for the content of the program, but a major focus of what we've had to do. I mean, can I've, they talk about it seriously or not? In time. And I kind time. of have to, to present it in a different way. I'll often joke with them, saying to this group of young men, certainly at this t- this time of year, from March to June, is one of the, uh, the hot seasons for me, as far as doing lots of programming. I'll walk into a classroom and I'll say to the guys, 
You know, when I was in high school way back when, if some random person would walk into my room right now, essentially as a substitute teacher or right. as a guest teacher, right. and starts talking about relationships and anger and conflict, right. that guy would have a real hard time. Of course. You can. So I kind of offer... I offer this to them. I say, here's the challenge. Right. It's on me to demonstrate to you why you should care about a word that I have to say. And, and as these sessions go on, you see them taking it more and more right. seriously. So as they see that it's real life and it's not about my preaching from the front of the classroom right. and it's not about lecturing to them and putting them down and talking about how men are evil or, you know, the, as that might relate to the point before, how right. the, the perspective of, of guys in relationships can be tainted. This is real life. This do you learn a lot, of, and I'm sorry for interrupting, do you learn a lot about the marriages and pe- parental relationship that these kids come from by discussing relationships with them? Like, is there a diverse response in the way they look at male-female relationships because they come from, I would guess, you know, everybody comes from a different type of home or a different right. uh, That's an important point that speaks to their attitudes and their expectations. Right. Their role and, models. Right? Right? Their role models, what they anticipate marriage being about is it the like you sometimes say to yourself boy this kid must come from mm-hmm. great parents and, I, <laughs> and as a therapist i also I try to when i'm in the classroom i'm staying in the in the role of a shalom task force presenter right. during this program but i do sometimes wonder at the same time this is why we're doing it when they're younger because we are able to reestablish perspectives we are re- able to kind of challenge some of those thoughts and some of those beliefs for the young man who might think when i get married it's the ball and chain my life is over. Right. And again, that's a small minority right. of, of the young men. This allows for them to shift and to see things from a different angle. Mayor Rizel among our guests, Director of Men's Education for the Shalom Task Force. Um, how do people get these programs started in their school? Like, How do they contact you or set this up or you know, bring you in? I mean, I'm sure the people listening right now want to bring you in to speak to their kids. They can check out our website, shalomtaskforce.org. They can there. call our office, 212-742-1478. And that's it. You know, Set it up. Simple as that. You're a professional therapist? Yeah. So you can give a word to our audience about the value of uh, couples therapy, children, po- possibly at times seeing therapists when there's a, a different situations at home, uh, in general, the benefits of all this. Right. I know a lot of people in our community are scared of it, but I would bet you only have positive things to say about it. All right. So when we look at it from the sense, and this is a good kind of segue to talk about Shalom Workshop, which right. is our, our couples program. When we talk about it as the driver's ed mm. of, of marriage and of coupleshood. And, and just like you can't drive without that driver's exactly. ed. Exactly. Right? And someone <laughs> might come to me and say, but, but my kid, they're good kids. They right. don't need this sort of thing. Akin to driver's ed, someone might have great reflexes, wonderful response sure. time, yet at the same time, they will ultimately benefit. They might not need it as badly right. as the guy who has two but left more hands hours, or two right hands, right. Um, but the more hours, the more time, the more preparation. This yep. is for everybody. This is not pathological. Right. This is not something that that speaks to their lack of capacity or ability, nor to their parents' ability or anything like that. These are tools. All right. Excellent. Uh, there are men's education programs, women's education programs uh, that go from teenage years till when? I mean, uh, till dating. We age. also have p- programs for mothers who oh, have daughters who so are training. So it goes way beyond that. Yes, we have programs for college teachers. We have programs for communities, community outreach. We have programs for the Bukharian community and the Persian community cultural programs. We have programs for um, for rabbanim in training and um, it's endless. Board and educators. 
Uh, everyone's encouraged to be there this coming Sunday. A Shalom Task Force ask for your, asks for your support at their uh, big brunch coming up at the Sephardic Temple in Cedarhurst. Uh, it happens this coming Sunday beginning at, uh, at 10 a.m. Information. Uh, what's the best way to get information about this? Website, shalomtaskforce.org, or the main number, 212-742-1478. Go to shalomtaskforce.org or 212-742-1478. Mazal tov to all the honorees. I'm sure you've chosen worthy people to be recognized this coming Sunday, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Our, our honorees are uh, have all been extremely involved in our organization. Aviva Hach is our uh, a board member, and he, uh, he, she, and her husband are amazing people. Judy Silverman is one of our strongest presenters, and Pes Epstein Alashalom was one of our founders and a really influential, uh, was a re- one of the greatest influences on our organization. Unbelievable. You're doing incredible work. Domestic violence hotline, if anybody out there needs it, whether it's uh, for immediate help, for legal services, to find out how you can uh, uh, stop the uh, type of situation you're in, uh, 718-337-3700. That is the domestic violence confidential hotline at 718-337-3700. Shalom Task Force information, information about this coming Sunday's event. Uh, where everyone's encouraged to uh, come, have a good time, and support the amazing work of Shalom Task Force is either shalomtaskforce.org or 212-742-1478, 212-742-1478. Anything to add, panel? Yes. Doctor? I, I, uh, I just wanted to add a couple of statistics when you were talking. Um, I have therapy experience as well many years, and I just wanted to point out that two-thirds of divorcing couples don't even get one hour of counseling, and two thirds. That's our community, or in general. That's a general statistic. Wow. Yeah, we have we don't have a lot of accurate right. research on our community, but, it's probably but we're close. working on that research. Right. Uh, and the other statistic is that two thirds of divorcing couples come from low conflict marriages, not the high conflict abusive marriages that we're talking about here that really should end. But two thirds of divorcing couples, they don't seek therapy. And the marriage kind of fizzles out, or when the romance and the Hollywood vision of marriage fizzles, then the marriage tends to fall apart. Two-thirds of them are from non-abusive types of relations, low-conflict marriage. So that's important. And I actually brought a couple of exercises. I thought you'd be curious. What do we do in some of the... In, in some of the workshops, here's here's an example. This is important in communication. You talk versus I talk. <laughs> and this is and this starts the process in terms of understanding the relationship that two married people are having. Absolutely. Instead of saying you shouldn't have done that, right. you're wrong. <laughs> you never call my mother. There are other ways of saying those exactly. Things. I would be grateful if you'd call my mother. Instead of saying you're wrong, you say I disagree. Instead of saying you're always late, you say I worry when you're late. I'll tell you, my own children have taken the workshop, <laughs> and they are thankfully very happily married, but they tell me that even after all these years, they still go back and refer to some of the skills and tools. That well, they I, remember, I remember a lecture given to Rabbi Krohn on this very topic of changing one's language and relationships. The difference it makes is unbelievable. unbelievable. People don't realize. When you say you, you're cornering somebody. Exactly. Right. And when you put a different spin on it, you can make them feel so good in a, in a you know, quote-unquote negative situation. It right. still and makes when sense. I talk about myself and my feelings, it's not a, there's no argument. It's All a right. discussion.
Unbelievable. Mayor has given dozens of workshops. It's the same thing for the men, right? So I'll just say a a version of that that I've used very often with the young men is I'll ask the group, have any of you ever been in a situation in which one person said to another, probably yelled it, what's wrong with you? And then I ask them, has there ever been a response (laughs) to that question by someone saying, what is wrong with me? <laughs> Thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity. For, to get out for true introspection, I've been plagued by that very question for some time now. What in the world is wrong with me? And at that point, they're cracking up, and they realize this is real life because they know that people will say what's wrong with you. All right. And so from there, we kind of bridge that to, so what might we say differently? All right. Unbelievable. Uh, you wanted to wrap up with a story, Alan? You got a few minutes? Uh, we got a minute. Go ahead. We're both fans of Reb Shlomo. Oh, yeah. The Baal Shem Tov was sitting in his office, and he heard a commotion outside the office. He stood up, he went outside, and he saw his gabai was in the middle of an argument with a gentleman, and he said, what's going on here? And the gabai says, oh, I'm sorry to bother the Rebbe, but this man claims that he was once the richest man in our town, and now he's dissatisfied with the amount of tzedakah that we're giving out. I'm giving out what we give to everybody each morning, which is two kopecks. And he's saying, no, I want five rubles. So Baal Shem Tov turns to the man and he says, instead of arguing with my gabai, why aren't you asking me, why did I become poor? So as Reb Shlomo would say, this is where our story begins. So he says, come into my office, sit down. He says, do you remember a few Yom Kippers ago what happened? And the poor man says, no, I have no idea. He says, remember what you used to do that everyone appreciated in Yom Kippur? He said, yes, I used to buy a large pouch of tabak, of sniffing tobacco, snuff that I would walk around with. At the end of the day on Yom Kippur, everybody's tired, everybody's hungry, and I would give some of this imported tabak to everybody. And the Baal Shem Dov said, but then what happened? He says, I don't recall at all, Rebbe, please tell me. He says, the poorest man in the town was sitting in the last row of the synagogue. He had so little money that he didn't even eat the day before Yom Kippur. But one thing he knew he could count on is that you were going to come around with some snuff topic, and it would rejuvenate his soul a little bit. And what did you do? And he said to himself, oh, Rebbe, I I regret it so much. He said, you're right. I turned around and I went the other way. It was beneath me to help that poor man in the last row. And the Basham said, at that moment it was decreed in heaven, all of your wealth should go over to him. So the poor man said, Rebbe, is there anything I can do? Is I'm, I, we're starving, my family, myself. Is there any? So the Baal Shem said, look, why don't you go approach the man, who's now the richest man in the town, and see if when you ask him for something, see what his reaction will be. So he says, okay. Starts in his journey the next morning. The man is in synagogue, about to put on tefillin, about to make the bracha, and he runs over to him and he says, give me snuff tabak. And the rich man says, well, if you're asking me, then I want to help you. So here. Next day, he comes to him as he's about to step back and say the Amida, the silent prayer in the synagogue, give me stuff topic. So the man stops. He reaches into his pocket and he says, okay, if you're asking me, then I'll help you. He's, he's giving up hope. But he sees a sign that says, and in former good days, 
there would be a sign that would say, the daughter of so-and-so is marrying the son of so-and-so. Everyone is invited. The whole town is invited to the wedding. And he realizes, this is the daughter of the rich man. That will be my opportunity to ask him for something, and he'll refuse me. So he approaches the rich man as they're about to walk the chassan to the badekin. Give me snuff topic. He jumps in front of the rich man as he's about to walk down the aisle to the chuppah. Give me snuff topic. Each time he asks this man, he's ready to help him. Then he knows that the highlight of the wedding, and Rib Shlomo would always insert that Hashem should answer all of the tefillahs of parents who are praying for children and individuals to find their mate. And at the high point of the wedding, the the father and the bride would get up on a table and dance. He ascends to the table to dance with his daughter at his wedding. The the poor man grabs onto the leg of the rich man and he says, Give me stuff, Tabak. Right at that moment, the high point of the wedding. The rich man turns around and he says, If you're asking me if you need, then I want to help you. The man passes out cold on the floor. Absolute knocked out. They revive him. They lift him up. The rich man comes down off the table and he says to him, he says, what happened, my friend? What happened? So he says, he says, why? He says, if the Baal Shem, he tells him the whole story. He says, if the Baal Shem Tov says that I have your money, he says, I will give it half of it back to you on the following agreement, that whenever anybody asks you for help, whenever anyone needs something, that you will always say yes and you will always respond. At Shalom Task Force, each day we stand ready to answer the call and assist with Shalom Bias in any way we can. This past Shabbos we read, V'ahavdel Reicha Kamocha in Parshas Kadoshim, and we hope and pray that you, Nachum, and all of the families who are in your listening audience have Shalom Bias. If you do, won't you please help us bring that to other Jewish families? It's certainly a good cause, that's for sure, as we've learned this morning. Shalom Task Force, this Sunday at 10 a.m., their annual brunch at the Sephardic Temple in Cedarhurst. Everybody be there. Call 212-742-1478, 212-742-1478. If you're in need of their domestic violence hotline, it's a confidential one, 718-337-3700. My thanks to Dr. Alan Singer, Mrs. Esther Williams, and Mayor Rizel for joining us this morning at JMA. I thank the entire panel. 20 minutes before 9 o'clock. This is a Tuesday morning broadcast at JM in the AM.